Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Money Talks. I'm Philip Coggan, the Bartleby columnist. This week, we look back on 20 years of the euro. The Anglo-Saxon media were extremely sceptical that we could manage this transition from 11 national currencies to a new one. We ask, have we reached peak smartphone? And what does this mean for the big manufacturers? And one research firm has crunched the numbers and decided that in the 10 biggest markets, sales are falling in seven of them. And I speak to Bruce Staisley, author of The Joy of Work, about ways to make work more joyful. If you turn off your notifications on your phone, it doesn't make you immediately abandon your sense of responsibility, but it gives you a bit of breathing space to elect when to check emails rather than to feel like they're being pressed on you all the time. But first, on the 1st of January 1999, 11 countries in the EU fixed their exchange rates and adopted a shared monetary policy under the European Central Bank with the common currency, the euro. To reflect on the anniversary and look to the next 20 years, here is Rachna Shambhog. The birth of the euro 20 years ago was divisive. Its supporters saw it as the pinnacle of 50 years of political and economic cooperation in Europe. Its critics thought currency union would shackle together economies that were too disparate and that it would be doomed to fail. But the euro is still here, having survived the near-death experience of the debt crises of 2009 to 2012. And today, it's more popular than ever with the public. I'm Rachna Shanbog, The Economist's Europe economics correspondent. And to look at the early days, I spoke to Otmar Rissing, a founding member of the executive board of the European Central Bank, the ECB, who is widely regarded as the architect of the euro, about what the weeks leading up to the birth of the currency were like. It was extreme hard work. I felt personally the responsibility to design a strategy for the monetary policy of this new institution. Remember, it was a time when especially the Anglo-Saxon media were extremely sceptical that we could manage this transition from 11 uh, national currencies to a new one. Uh, the Germans were very concerned to give up their DM, which had a high reputation, and the Bundesbank too. It was uh, a total surprise if you look on the numbers of financial data, let's say end of December 98 and move to January 99, you wouldn't find any trace uh, of uh, something specially happening. Uh, so it was a smooth transition which went much beyond my expectations. I also asked him about his own misgivings at the time. Not to create a misunderstanding, I was in favour of a monetary union as the coronation stone 
of a long process of continuing integration within Europe. But starting for me, 1st of January 99, with 11 countries, I think this was not what I had in mind. So I found it very, very risky, but I saw a chance, and this was the reason why I accepted my nomination. The euro area's weaknesses became obvious after debt crises engulfed the currency union. Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Spain and Cyprus all needed bailing out. I asked Jean-Claude Trichet, who served as president of the European Central Bank during much of the crisis, about the eurozone's response to it. In the crisis, proving that... uh, History in the making is at stake there because we reinforced the Stability and Growth Pact in the crisis. We created the European Stability Mechanism, which, by the way, is an enormously powerful institution with a callable capital of more than 700 billion euros. We have created the Macroeconomic Imbalance Procedure, MIP, which was a new way of looking at uh, economic imbalances. We have created the uh, banking union. All uh, things that I'm just mentioning did not exist before the crisis. So they, they came as, you know, drawing in real time lessons of experience. And how can the next 20 years be better than the first 20 Take the case of Italy, because uh, for uh, current politics, it's in the headlines. Italy has saved tens of billions of euros on the reduction of interest rates to the lowest level, uh, like in France and, and Germany. If Italy would have used the savings to reduce its debt, it would be in a position even better than Germany. But they have spent this money for consumption. And if Italy is, for example, uh, complaining that uh, there should be needs for additional funds for a European unemployment insurance scheme or whatsoever, and at the same time is spending uh, huge amounts for social benefits, I think this is something which doesn't, uh, it's not consistent. I think national governments' arrangement of the monetary union, their main responsibility. It's on the national level. And this composition of a single monetary policy and supranational institution, the ECB, and the responsibility of national governments, this is still uh, what makes the monetary union vulnerable. Well, as you see, I'm not negative on the first 20. And uh, uh, I, I, uh, I have to say that seen particularly, frankly speaking, from the expectations coming from Friends in the U.S., for instance, or friends uh, in the rest of the world, uh, a little bit by way of consequence. Uh, In comparison with these expectations, the the success is there. But we have a lot to be done still, of course. And uh, I expect that we will continue to improve the governance of the euro area, would also mention the fact that, uh, in my opinion, when time comes, we should improve the uh, legitimacy, the democratic legitimacy of uh, very important decisions that are taken by the euro area in having a parliament of the euro area, namely the subcomponent of the European Parliament, which uh, corresponds to MPs of the euro area. It's a long-term historic process, 
And so I see a lot of additional reasons in the present period for the European to continue to improve their own uh, union. I know that it appears a little bit bizarre in the eyes of, uh, of uh, a number of British citizens, but I really trust that it corresponds to the period in which we, we are, that we are experiencing where uh, you know, unity is a must for the Europeans. Everyone agrees that change is needed if the euro is to withstand its next crisis. But there's disagreement over what precisely needs to be done. Many, like Otmar Rissing, think member countries should keep their own finances in check. Others, like Jean-Claude Trichet, think that the euro area needs to improve its architecture. The euro may be 20, but in many ways it is still a work in progress. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Now, have we hit peak smartphone? Last week, Apple announced it was cutting its forecast for revenues for the quarter and blamed issues in China, weak iPhone sales worldwide. So that raises the question, has the smartphone market reached its peak? To discuss this, I'm joined by Tim Cross, our technology editor. So, Tim, is it all Apple's fault or is there a more general problem? I think there is a more general problem. I mean, Tim Cook isn't wrong. Sales have not done as well as he'd hoped they would in China. But if you look at the market overall, you know, lots of smartphones are being sold, about a billion and a half a year. But we've had four straight quarters now of declines in shipments, declines in sales. And one research firm has crunched the numbers and decided that in the 10 biggest markets, sales are falling in seven of them. We've also got evidence that people are hanging on to their old phones for longer. So rather than upgrade every year and a half, it's maybe more like two and a half or even three years. And all this is sort of pushing down on demand. And I suppose the other question is, is Apple specifically losing its hold on consumer imaginations? I mean, you have to pay a lot for an iPhone. There are cheaper uh, options available. Uh, might people be deciding you know, to switch to a Samsung or whatever rather than pay that extra amount for an iPhone? Well, this is something that people have been asking for years. And you're right, you know, our iPhones are very, very expensive. But interestingly, Apple's strategy at the moment seems to be to double down. So the average selling price is actually going up. And the big advantage that they have is that they have what Warren Buffett calls a moat. You know, once you're in the Apple ecosystem and you're using iOS for everything, and all your contacts and your data are saved in Apple's cloud servers and so on, it's difficult, it's a pain, it's a hassle to switch to an Android device. So you can go out and buy a phone from Huawei or Samsung or Xiaomi or, or whoever you like. But if you want all the data to come with you, and you don't want to sort of have to rebuild your digital life, that's quite tricky. So I think their existing market share is, is probably safe. But there is a question about what happens with, with sort of new customers. Because as you say, in Android, which is about 80% of the global smartphone market, so it's, it's collectively much bigger than iOS, there's been fierce competition for years. Uh, and the competition's only getting fiercer. So everyone's heard of people like Samsung and Huawei. There are these Chinese firms uh, such as Xiaomi is probably the best known one in the West that are sort of trying to undercut them, coming in with very good quality phones at, at you know, comparatively low prices. And we're starting to see quite a lot of sort of heavy discounting and price wars at, at the top end as well. So I think for now, Apple is safe. There's an interesting question about where they go in the long run, though. And where do you think they will go? Well, the problem with Apple at the moment is they are, uh, partly because the iPhone's been so successful, they're a bit of a one-trick pony. 
Now, of course, Apple is aware of this and they have been trying to diversify. So you've seen things. Uh, they've made an entrance into the, uh, the sort of smart speaker market to compete with Amazon and people like that, which hasn't been as successful as they've hoped. The Apple Watch is you know, a wearable device, which lots of people think some form of wearable device might be the next big platform. That's done a bit better. So they're exploring sort of other areas in which they can sell their hardware. And Tim Cook also talks a lot about trying to become more of a service company, so focusing on the software that runs on your iPhone rather than the iPhone itself. But in global terms, is this necessarily bad news? I mean, more people are still buying uh, smartphones. There are 1.5 billion sales. So it's becoming available to more people in the population if, you know, the super profits don't emerge for the phone companies. Is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't think it is. I mean, you know, the justification for capitalism is that all these these very juicy profits that companies like Apple can earn are a signal for other companies to come in and, and compete. And when that happens, the profits almost become self-abolishing. So if we see something like that happen, it will mean that these very, very useful devices are available even more cheaply than they are now and will spread even further. And I also think whether it's good or not, it's, um, it's probably inevitable. Because if you look at, at the numbers, smartphones didn't really exist at all until about 10 years ago or so. Nowadays, the stats aren't too firm, but somewhere between two and two and a half billion people have one. Uh, and particularly in, in the rich world in middle income countries, the market is getting towards uh, saturation. And that doesn't mean there's no growth left. Uh, there are plenty of people who don't have smartphones and might buy them if they were cheaper or as they become richer. But I just think the growth that's happened over the last 10 years has been so fast and so breakneck that it's almost impossible for it to continue uh, as it had. Tim Cross, thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. And now I'm joined by Bruce Daisley, author of The Joy of Work, 30 Ways to Fix Your Work Culture and Fall in Love with Your Job Again. And he's head of Twitter in Europe. So that sounds very impressive. So much of your book is filled with some quite relaxed recommendations for how people should go about their working lives, you know, take shorter working weeks, have uh, switch off notifications. Do you actually live up to what you preach at Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I think my start point was that, like most people, I was exhausted with my job. And so I think that's pretty universal. In fact, if you chat to bosses, especially when they're sort of they're on a, a bit of a downturn, you know, when they're sipping a glass of wine, they'll say to you, I'm exhausted. And I was observing how universal that was becoming. Observing that amongst colleagues and observing that amongst the people I work with and, and sort of extrapolating that, I just thought, that we need to try and make an intervention. We need to try and redress some of the balance. Now, you have some lovely phrases in here about what things you can do. So I like the idea of the monk mode morning. So can you explain what that involves? Yeah, so I'm convinced that no one is going to unveil the new model of work. And so if we're going to try and make work less insufferable, we need to probably just try and find small modifications that will improve work. One of them is a monk mode morning. So that's informed by a guy called Cal Newport, who has become famous for espousing this idea of deep work. And the idea of deep work is that the understanding that we don't accomplish anything without a period of concentrated effort. The idea that somehow we can achieve things by these little frivolous three-minute interventions is fanciful. To accomplish something, you need to sit down and focus on it. And so his point was that the enemy of deep work is interruptions. And most of us now uh, experience hundreds of interruptions every day, open plan being the number one culprit of, of interruptions. So most of us are experiencing these the punctuations, unwelcomed punctuations in our work. 
his idea was, if you're going to establish the idea of deep work, maybe take a couple of times during the week where you say to people, I'm not going to be at my desk till 11am. Like a monk, you're uncontactable, maybe for 90 minutes at the start of those days. What you tend to find is probably the, one of the leading psychologists who studied work is a woman called Teresa Amable. And Teresa Amable found a very simple discovery that anyone would recognize that a good day at work, when we say we've had a good day at work, is when we've made progress on something that we consider to be meaningful. And most of us now find ourselves in an environment where the average exec spends about 23 hours of meetings a week, and they tend to get at least 140 emails sent and received during a day. The volume of things in our way preventing us from making progress is formidable. Now, it's interesting that you take this view coming from social media, because a lot of people might say that social media only adds to the pressure. I hate to think of the hours I've spent on Twitter debating with people about issues where I probably shouldn't have wasted my typing fingers. Do you think that you're part of the problem, the very business that you operate in adding to the pressure on employees? Yeah, it's definitely a fair question because it, it's you know inevitably the first thing that people ask. I work at Twitter. Isn't Twitter, as you say, in some way contributing it? I mean, it's worth saying that the average Twitter user uses it for about six to ten minutes a day. So people tend to use Twitter as the app to find out what's happening. You open it to see what's happening in the news. But I, th- I think, you know, you, you make a fair point. And my feeling is very strongly that all of us should think about our motivations for using the technology we use and, you know, and ration them to the extent that we, that makes us happy. So I don't think anyone at Twitter would say that people should be glued to their phones. Far from it. And you do indeed suggest a time for switching off notifications. If people did one of these interventions, the single best thing that anyone can do to improve their mental headspace, to to reduce the burden of work upon them, is to switch off notifications on your phone. And what you tend to find when you do it is that we've all got that heuristic now that you wake up in the morning and maybe your phone's next to your bed or maybe it's it's downstairs. But we go through these like a, a pecking order, isn't there? You check your messages, you check missed calls, and maybe you check social media. And then it's what you do next. And what you tend to find that by turning the notifications off on your phone and especially turning email notifications off, it gives you a little bit of breathing space to pause before you you start working. The reason why I think that's especially important is that if you look at how, if you deconstruct, if you backward engineer how people describe when they had ideas, it tends to be that ideas come to people when they're, uh, when they're thinking of nothing, actually, it's when their default network kicks in. The sort of the network that runs when you're not doing anything else, and that's when, like, if you say to people, you know, when when did you get your idea? It's yeah, the when default. they're on a walk, you suggest. That's right. is, yes. When they're on a walk, or I love the one Aaron Sorkin, the guy who brought the West Wing to us. He brought the the film The Social Network to us. He found personal discovery. He found that he was having he was activating his default network. He was finding ideas were coming to him in the shower. And so he told Hollywood Reporter magazine that he takes up to eight, eight to ten showers a day because he found that it was just liberating his creative ideas. So if you turn off your notifications on your phone, it doesn't make you immediately abandon your sense of responsibility, but it gives you a bit of breathing space to elect when to check emails rather than to feel like they're being pressed on you all the time. 
the same very wise words. Uh, Bruce Daisley, whose book out is The Joy of Work, 30 Ways to Fix Your Work Culture and Fall in Love with Your Job Again. And of course, one way to take your mind off everything is to listen to a podcast. So we hope you'll keep listening. Bruce, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Philip Coggan. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.